the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is. Hello there. Good afternoon to you. Five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. Here it is on a Wednesday. We're already the second day in February. Is that possible? Yeah, I guess the calendar's agreeing with us, so that's the story we're going to stick with. Hey, a lot to talk about tonight, including a significant troop buildup taking place in Europe right now. And I think it has growing numbers of Americans wondering, are we about to get into another foreign entanglement when we barely extracted ourselves, and none too delicately, I might add, out of the last one, America's longest-running foreign war, referring, of course, to our presence in Afghanistan. And most importantly, what does this mean for us? Uh, We're going to be potentially looking at the impact of a war and the um, financial devastation. And I say that because we just crossed over $30 trillion in debt, not that anybody in Washington, D.C. cares, but it raises some very significant questions. A um, foreign policy expert Kelly Sloan will join us later on in tonight's program to help break down exactly where things stand and is it too little too late to try and dissuade Putin from invading Ukraine and what's in it for him to begin with. We'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on. But I want to first begin with a topic a little bit closer to home and I have to acknowledge this is going to be uncomfortable for some of you in the audience. This is going to hit close to home for some of you tonight. But it's a discussion that has to be had. Let me set the stage by saying this. Many of us spend a lifetime looking forward to retirement and being able to enjoy the fruits of our labor and get a little downtime. And, of course, along with that typically means being at home, ending the process of getting up in the morning, dressed, off to work, and then coming back home in the evenings where now you're home all the time. We've seen increasing cases of this, certainly with the impact of COVID, whether people have been forced to work from home or voluntarily have done so, been laid off, maybe injured or ill as a result. For retirees, oftentimes it means that whoever the principal breadwinner was that was out of the house all day, every day, is now home all day, every day. One woman whose husband recently retired put it like this. After 30 years, he's retired. She has twice the husband and half the house. (laughs) Now, if you're nodding in acknowledgement of, yeah, that's kind of my experience or, uh, you know, or, or twice the wife, whatever the case might be, well, you're not alone. And this is a challenge when suddenly you're used to having a little breathing room and your space and me time. Now, all of a sudden, that's been taken away. The kids are all moved up, grown up, and 
gone, and you're trying to deal with how you balance this. Well, my first guest tonight is going to give us some insights. She is a award-winning author, recently co-wrote Spouse in the House, Rearranging Our Attitudes to Make Room for Each Other, released by Kriegel Publications. Cynthia Rukti, always a delight to have you with us. Thank you so much, Craig. It's a delight to talk with you tonight. And uh, what do you think about that <laughs> woman's observation? The husband retired. She's got twice the husband and half the house. Boy, does that sum it up or what? It does. I wrote it down in my notes. But also, I I thought about it, and sometimes it turns out to be four times the husband and a quarter of the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that could be true, too. It just depends on how, in, how invasive he is. And, you know, uh, anyone listening right now that knows what this is like is, is, is probably saying, yeah, let me tell you what life was like. You know, the, the first week he concentrated on relaxing, lounging around, having breakfast, cup of coffee, read the newspaper all day. Week number two, he started organizing the garage. Week three, he cleaned the garage again. Week four, he cleaned the garage again. By week five, he was alphabetizing the spices in my <laughs> spice rack. How do I get rid of this man? <laughs> and, you know, we laugh about it. We have to because that's one of the ways we survive it is through humor. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people that find they are either kind of silently fuming over the the changes that have happened, or they're tripping over one another all the time, or their relationship can even go into a real stalemate during a season when it should seem like bliss, or we think and imagine it should be like bliss. Oh, we have so much time to be together. Well, what we've been through in the past couple of years has taught us that togetherness isn't always the bliss that it is claimed to be. Sometimes it gives us a few blisters. Sometimes we we are finding ourselves trying to breathe the same air, and it's not working very well. Hence the idea of rearranging our attitudes or our furniture to make room for one another. Yeah, to be sure. And you know, it's ironic because we oftentimes spend a lifetime looking forward to this day, but are perhaps ill-prepared. Are there cases... Cynthia, where maybe we, we, we suddenly discover that the, the, the balance that we had during our working years kind of falls apart, and suddenly oh. that sense of being on each other's nerves escalates to the point where some relationships are saying, you know, we, we need to reconsider here. This isn't working out. There's actually, there are some scientific statistics that are talking about the, the increase of divorce in what might be called the graying population. And part of that is because we do often talk about what our financial picture is going to look like after retirement. That's just a part of everyone's approach to retirement, whether there is any money or not to worry about. There's a there's that discussion, the discussion about how are we preparing for retirement financially. We rarely talk about how we prepare for it emotionally. We rarely talk about how we're going to prepare for it relationally. And where married couples often go through a premarital counseling session, that's not really what happens typically as we approach that age where we're going to be together far more uh, of the portion of each day because because one or the other are retired or both are. 
And, you know, I, I guess part of this comes down to being able to strike that that harmonious balance where we can celebrate the togetherness and the increased time that we have together, but at the same time recognize that, you know, the spouse that's been home the entire time probably has a routine set up or they might be engaged in, in hobbies or activities and all of a sudden you're fighting over the computer, you're fighting over the, the home office space or wherever the, the workplace might be designated in the house. And if you really haven't talked about how this is going to work once the other partner retires, this can be a real problem. I mean, you, you're, you're depriving that other person of, of part of what had been their comfortable routine. A lot of couples don't even realize that just the sound level difference or the presence, just the sense that somebody else is in the house changes the atmosphere a little bit, even if that person who's in the house now all the time is someone you dearly love. In some ways, it's, there's a, a distraction. I've worked from home for all of my career, and my husband was forced into early retirement at the age of 50, which was way too young for that. Eventually, he did, after a few years, go back to work in a couple of part-time jobs that he dovetailed for a while, and now he's at the, the age where he can be fully retired or close to it. But uh, I have worked from home, and all of a sudden, there's different music playing in the house that I'm used to having, or there's noise, or there are questions, or there are natural interruptions, because for him, my working from home seems like uh, freedom (laughs) when he was heading out the door to work all those years, but I was heading to my office very seriously to be engaged in what God had given me to do for those years, and it's not that it created instant uh, war. It didn't create war, but there were those natural tensions, and if we weren't addressing them well or handling them well, which is why the book was written in the first place, because uh, my best friend, Becky Melby, and I, who Becky co-wrote the book with me, we were talking to one another often about, this is what's happening in our house. How am I going to handle this in a godly way? Or, this is what's happening in our house. That's odd, correct? And she would say, nope, same thing happening happening here. So as we were encouraging each other and with that understanding that we we knew that there had to be positive ways that we could work our way through these natural pinch points in that kind of a relationship season, we realized, boy, there are a lot of other people who are going through the same thing. And then with the advent of there being far more people who are sharing office space at home, far more people now working from home or running a business together from home, and and then other reasons that it might have kept us uh, in tight quarters, it, it soon became evident that there were more people than just the two of us who needed to take a look at it. Oh, undoubtedly so. And of course, now with the backdrop of the influence of and impact of COVID, you know, what seemed to be mm-hmm. maybe a temporary scenario just a year or two ago for a lot of people might have become permanent. I know many high tech companies here in the Bay Area have kind of adopted a, you know, if you can work from home, we want you to do so. We don't want you coming in and, and increasing your risk and exposure. And so, you know, where if one spouse was was at home taking care of the kids or maybe worked out of the home as a home entrepreneur um, and, and or both of you have been sent home and there's one home office and two of you 
boy, this can really create a lot of frustration. And as much as we'd like to think that we can celebrate all of that togetherness, many of you eavesdropping on our conversation tonight know that sometimes there's a feeling of being just a bit too much together. Cynthia Renthrukti is with us tonight. Cynthia, of course, is the award-winning author of a number of books. Her latest co-written with Becky Melby is called Spouse in the House. Rearranging our attitudes to make room for each other. So how do we go about negotiating? Who gets what time and, and being sensitive to each other? And, 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 and in the end, turning this into something that is a blessing as opposed to a curse. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues, as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 21 minutes after the hour on your Thursday commute. Craig Roberts on your radio along with Cynthia Rukti. Cynthia is the author, co-author actually, of a new book called Spouse in the House, Rearranging Our Attitudes to Make Room for Each Other. Newly released by Kriegel Publications. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, Bay Area Christian Bookstores, or through Cynthia's website, Cynthia Rukti, spelled R U C. H-T-I, CynthiaRukti.com. Cynthia, it sounds like this is something where, you know, we don't always know in advance if we're going to be sent home, uh, the, the job downsizes, and suddenly um, both spouses are, are, are home all the time. But to the degree to which we have some advance notice, it sounds like a sit-down, frank discussion as to how this is going to work is probably most important, and yet I would suspect seldom happens in advance. I think you're absolutely right, and it's also not going to happen naturally. We can't just enter that time, that season of our life, and expect that, oh, it'll all work out. That kind of attitude rarely does work out when it comes to relationships. There has to be that communication. One of the things that that we've thought about often is the idea that shame and blame and scorekeeping really have no place in a marriage. If we have adopted that kind of a habit or an attitude throughout our marriage, that's great. That's going to serve us well when we get to a time when we're home together all the time. But if we haven't, and that has been the natural habit to, to throw shame and to throw blame and to keep score, when it gets to this time when we're together a lot, it's going to be just exacerbated that much worse than it ever was. So part of it is entering this time period and having those sit-down conversations about how are we going to work it out, and let's take scorekeeping and 50-50 off the table. That will never happen. Uh, it It is it's not going to function well that way, partly because we have different learning styles. We, we may be one flesh, but that doesn't mean that we don't each have our own fingernails and our own hair follicles and, and um, the, our own eyes and viewpoint that we're seeing things from. So if we approach it more from an attitude that 50-50 can't be our goal, serving one another can be our goal, treating one another with the kindness that that the Bible instructs us to treat anyone in any relationship with gentleness and tenderness and thoughtfulness and weighing our words and and realizing for, for a lot of wives it comes as a surprise that their husband can't read their mind, 
but they're going to continue to expect them to. So having those wide open conversations that will even look at things like, where are you most skilled or gifted or able? And where am I most skilled and gifted and able? And how does that help us form a foundation for simple things like who's going to empty the dishwasher now that we're both home all the time? Or or is that going to be relegated to one or the other of us? Not because it's been a habit for our, work, for our working years, but new habits for the current season that we're in. That might mean financial questions. It might mean talking through how are we each going to spend our leisure time and how are we going to find time for leisure together that we both appreciate. It's realizing what's important to the other person and, as the Bible told us clearly, making that our goal is looking toward how we can how we can not just think to our own needs but to the needs of the other person that we're living with. Boy, and that's so important, finding that, that very delicate balance here. Because as you say, you might have had a, kind of a way that things worked out that, well, of, of course, naturally, the, the stay-at-home spouse, raising the kids, whatever, handled things like, you know, doing the shopping, et cetera, et cetera. Now suddenly you're both home. You may need to rethink that. I'm curious, Cynthia, from your viewpoint, is it also important not to, uh, how should I say this, pull rank? And by that I mean the, the sense that, well, I'm I'm the principal breadwinner here, so of course I need to have the, the home office every day. Now, maybe the stay-at-home spouse has said, yeah, but wait a minute, for years I've been engaged in certain hobbies, maybe volunteering with the PTA, things that require the use of a computer in the home office. Now all of a sudden the husband is home saying, well, i got to make money, so you got to move out. And suddenly the wife is feeling as if she's being marginalized. Sometimes it's as simple a thing as, can I get ice out of the ice maker in the refrigerator when my partner is on a Zoom call in the other room? It's <laughs> it's all those kinds of details that really matter. And, and it, if we're approaching them from the attitude of wanting to, to make our place, our home, a place of peace, whether it's an apartment or a or a caravan or a van or, or a huge house that even a large house can seem like it's too small sometimes even with only two people in it if we don't work out those relationship issues no matter what it is if we if we go after the goal of having it be a haven we we've often talked about the idea that when when whichever mate is out whether it's grocery shopping or at work or wherever when they come home our greeting should be welcome home or I'm so glad you're home, as opposed to, oh, you again? <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that simple twist in an attitude change can make such a difference. My husband did something that really changed a major pinch point for us. We live in a, an old, old farmhouse that had a tiny, tiny little narrow main thoroughfare at the bottom of the stairs going upstairs into the kitchen, dining room, and my office that was only 18 inches wide. So it has been for all the years we've lived in this house, this tremendous pinch point of one-way traffic all the time. And we would bump into each other. We And when company was here, it was even worse. But even with just the two of us, it was constant one-way traffic. One of us had to back up, so the other one just kind of like semis meeting on a one 
one-lane highway or something, but one had to back up and let the other one through. My husband started to, just on his own, he adopted this principle that instead of just saying excuse me, which excuse me was a nice courtesy, but he started saying excuse me, my love, and all of a sudden that pinch point became more like a place where we hung the mistletoe. It it was a a simple term of endearment, simple attitude adjustments or rearranging furniture just a little bit, the furniture of our heart just a little bit, can make dramatic and radical changes in whether this is going to work well or be a constant source of irritation. Final question for you, Cynthia, just to kind of put this in perspective. Uh, Sometimes there's this notion that, well, we're going to go from having his world, her world, now becomes our, our joint world, our world, is it important to strike some balance that we acknowledge that sometimes we do need a little, um, what do you call it, a me time, so that <laughs> it's not suddenly this, this perfect blending, but that there do needs to be, that there does need to be a sense of distinction of the his world, her world, our world, maybe the balance or the mix of that, the percentages uh, distributed amongst the three changes, but that there's still that sense of respect of a little bit of the independence? Mm, absolutely. I I believe strongly that's absolutely true for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is if we're experiencing every experience side by side and together, that means we have far less to talk about because we, we had the same experiences. So if I have my own interests as well, he has his own interests as well. And he may be far more passionate about his leisure time activities than I am, like at our house, or uh, some other interests that I may have that he's not as, as excited about. We may be reading different books, whatever it is, if we have our alone time. I, I kind of, I have, I'm a little resistant to the me time because it sounds selfish. But instead, that alone time or our pursuing our own interests winds up making us a much richer couple eventually. We have more to talk about. We have things to share that each one of us experienced without the other one present, as well as having those things that we do together. So, yes, absolutely true. But we, but we can't approach it from the attitude that I need to be away from you, even though the end result of it is sometimes especially if it's an introvert-extrovert a difference of opinions in, in the personalities. Sometimes it's an actual need of the heart to have time when I can think a thought through all the way to the end. We, My husband and I quickly realized that I can think in three-point plans. He needs three days to think, think about a thought. But once we acknowledged it and realized that, we're very happy. I can present an idea and say, give us some thought for the next couple of days, and we'll, we'll connect back up on that idea and see what you think about it. Otherwise, we were butting heads because my arguments for or against something would seem like it was for or against him. him yeah. And instead, it was just different ways of processing. Yeah, so. Just slightly out of sync. And it's important not only for the success of the marriage relationship, but I'm almost thinking this ought to be a book that becomes required reading for every couple that's about to be home because of 
certainly uh, retirement, as we've discussed, or because a spouse is now in a uh, full-time work-at-home job, uh, this can make that experience go so much smoother. Spouse in the house, rearranging our attitudes to make room for each other, Kriegel Publications, and of course, its co-author with us today, Cynthia Rukti. Cynthia, thanks so much for the time and the insights, very valuable. And I think if listeners take them to heart, you make this whole process of retirement go much more smoother. 532 from KFAX. So what And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have learned this afternoon that President Biden is sending additional troops to Eastern Europe. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said Russia's troop buildup along the border with Ukraine is, quote, destabilizing. He went on to say that about 3,000 additional U.S. troops are being deployed to Romania, Poland, and Germany. 1,000 are being dispatched from other posts in Europe. Another 2,000 will be deployed from the U.S. directly. Kirby called it an evolving situation and said the U.S. troop movements are not permanent and will not be sent into combat in the Ukraine. Ukraine, by the way, for the record, is not a part of NATO. Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded assurances that Ukraine will never join NATO. So with this troop buildup, and compared to 100,000 Russian troops along the Ukrainian border, it's hardly a threat to Vladimir Putin. But what exactly is this suggesting? And is it too little too late in terms of dissuading Putin from any military engagement again with Ukraine? Offering some insights is Kelly Sloan. Kelly is a public policy fellow at the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. And Kelly, thank you for taking time to be with us today. I, I, I guess part of the big concern and something that's on the hearts and minds of every American, and that is we're so war-weary especially after our last engagement that, as we all know, in Afghanistan didn't start well and it didn't end well. Are we looking potentially at yet another military entanglement? And if so, does the American public really have the stomach for it? That's a, that's a very good question. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the question is, is always been, you know, what, what's, what do we really care about uh, uh, Ukraine and, and, and Russia weren't wanting to invade. And I think you know, there's not really an uh, American uh, uh, kind of American government interest in how Russia res- responds or deals with its uh, former Soviet republics. I mean, the tensions between Russia and Ukraine and Russia and uh, Lithuania and Russian Latins, all the other uh, uh, former uh, Soviet republics has been going on for quite some time, even predating the Soviet Union. The American concern is an emboldened and enriched Russian military, which could pose a threat to uh, Western Europe, uh, energy supplies around the, around the nation, uh, around, the, around the world, uh, destabilizing presence in Europe and in Asia, so on and so forth. And keep in mind that if Russia were to absorb Ukraine, that would enrich her considerably uh, in terms of energy, in terms of mining, in terms of uh, agricultural land. <clears throat> so that's the American concern. Now, as to uh, the announcement today of additional troop movements, uh, American troop movements into Eastern Europe, uh, <coughs> I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I, I do think you're right. It's probably a little bit too, uh, too little too late. What America should have been doing, and this is the point of the column I wrote, uh, wrote last week, um, uh, and I titled it uh, Ukraine-Biden problem because Ukraine does have a, a problem with the current uh, U.S. administration. 
Um, the problem is what America should have been doing is leading from the front, not leading from behind, you know, the, the old uh, President, President Obama's approach to foreign policy. Uh, and not doing anything unilaterally. I think that was one problem that President Trump had in terms of foreign policy as well. But uh, America is the only country in the world that is really in a position to do something that would make an invasion or a minor incursion, if you will, uh, of Russia into, into Ukraine prohibitively expensive, not just in terms of dollars and cents, uh, the sanctions that everybody's talking about. And they're talking about some pretty historically significant sanctions. Um, including uh, you know, ejecting Russia from some of the international banking, international currency uh, standards. Um, those should have been done preemptively. Uh, we should have been arming Ukraine with the stuff they need, you know, really useful weapons, any tank, any aircraft uh, 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 imagery, uh, even some, merit, some, some maritime, uh, maritime defense stuff. All that should have been done a long time ago. The problem is we didn't do it. We, uh, Decker, we kind of played back and forth. Of course, we uh, reneged our, uh, weakened our stance on Nord Stream 2, which really gave Russia the upper hand in terms of uh, energy supply and energy policy in Europe. And we did really nothing for all of President Biden's bluster about you know, reversing the uh, mistakes of Donald Trump and alienating our allies. You know, we would bring the, uh, the allies and bring NATO together. We did no such thing. NATO is just as fragmented now as it was two years ago. Uh, you might argue more so with Germany being probably the weakest link in the, uh, in the alliance. So, um, so yeah, I do think America does have an interest in, in what's what's happening over there, clearly. Uh, in terms of are the American people ready for another war, I don't think America is going to get involved in shooting war with Russia. I don't think that's in anybody's best interest. What I think the foreign policy ought to be is making the Russians nervous enough about that happening that they would pull back and, and not risk it. Because I think you're right. I don't think the, Amer- uh, the American public, especially right now with everything else we have going on, the current recovery from COVID, historic inflation, um, all this going on, I, I have to wonder, though, at, at some layers here, Kelly, even as there's talk about, you know, some of these significant sanctions, but is it too little too late that we're taking more of a reactive approach as opposed to a proactive approach? And I'm wondering, from your perspective, is there not maybe even more at stake here? Not only because if we start uh, showing a little bit of muscle, but we're not consistent about it, you know, uh, Russia's got Europe over a bit of a, a, a barrel here in in terms of the the Russian gas pipeline, that they could certainly make life in Europe uh, in a retaliatory fashion um, quite uncomfortable. Moreover, I'm wondering, too, you know, we're talking about, well, how will Putin react to what we do? But another big question is, how will China react to what we do? They've got to be looking at this thinking, well, you know, if the United States just kind of rolls over, and Putin steps into more of the Ukraine, much as he came into Crimea under Trump, and there was very little uh, consequences to that. Wouldn't China look at that and say, okay, there's our license to go ahead and do what we want with Taiwan? Absolutely. You know, and that's, uh, you know they're already looking at you know, recent American history. I mean, one, one of our biggest blunders, clearly, was the uh, uh, precipitous and disastrous withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. I mean, you know, Putin 
uh, Xi Jinping, uh, all of our adversaries are looking at that mess and thinking, look, we, uh, the United States dedicated 20 years of manpower and treasure into Afghanistan and left overnight, without even consulting with our allies. Uh, that, you know, that's one thing I think has been underreported. If you're, if you're NATO, uh, you know, if you're uh, Germany or Poland, you're looking at that situation and saying, my God, what uh, there hasn't been a serious American presence here for after uh, 20 years. They haven't been invested the, you know, the time lives in, in Poland. Uh, what are they going to do when we leave them? Right? So we're already starting from you know, a few steps behind in terms of uh, reputation. You know, that, you know, that The way that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is handled was I think, a lot more important than a lot of people think. It's kind of like moved off the front pages now, of course, in the last few months. But uh, in, in terms of foreign policy and how people are looking at the United States, it was insignificant. Uh, yeah, and pretty ironic, too, because there was so much talk going way back to the Bush days about the importance of having a coalition and a sense of agreement amongst our allies going in. But we uh, entirely abandoned that notion going out, not recognizing that there could and were likely would be repercussions that we are now suffering. And it's, you know, it's it's a, a, a bit of a disaster. And, and as you point out, our allies in Europe have got to be looking at that thinking, okay, just how reliable is the United States in terms of its partnership with NATO, um, which, of course, post-World War II was established to try and prevent Russia from its desires moving ever uh, westward and or eastward, rather, and, and westward. And now you're, you're looking at having repeated the same mistake. Yeah, I mean, you can hardly blame Germany for kind of going off on their own. Now, uh, you know, Germany, for the last several years, has been kind of in appeasement mode with, with Russia, uh, you know, especially, you know, uh, Angela Merkel. There was hardly anything the Russians could do that, you know, she wouldn't uh, wasn't in lockstep with. Of course, she's gone now. <laughs> uh, pardon my cough. I'm still getting over that. Uh, a flu and flu is winning. Um, uh her government's been replaced by the Social Democratic Coalition, which is even more invertebrate when it comes to, uh, to dealing with, uh, with Russia. But you can hardly blame them, because if, if they're looking at, you know, we have uh, our American allies under President Biden looking at what, what happened in Afghanistan, looking at the fact that we don't have a foreign policy, and that's really what this all comes down to, whether it's with Afghanistan or what's happening right now in uh, Ukraine-Russia or what's happening in Taiwan. A large part of the problem is we don't have an actual foreign policy. It's the same problem we had under uh, 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 President Obama. You know, our, our foreign policy just kind of went from one crisis to another, bouncing around here and there is in directionless. There's nothing really guided what, what the American, American strategy was. Well, and that really goes back to my original point, and that is this sense that our American foreign policy has become, instead of proactive, simply reactionary. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you can't line up your ducks in advance, uh, deployment after the fact is far more expensive, far more difficult, and seldom successful. Kelly Sloan, public policy fellow with the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. Kelly, we appreciate the time and the insights. 547 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. As we turn a corner, a um, pivotal part of the debate related to 
the uh, future of Roe versus Wade, which we hope is a very short one, as the Supreme Court is due to render a decision sometime before mid-year, and that is the breadth and depth of not just state regulations, but the broader question of was a mistake made, meaning we've largely concluded that Roe versus Wade legalized abortion in America by protecting a woman's right to choose, but did it really? Or is there something broader, deeper, far more insidious at play here? My uh, next guest has unearthed some remarkable audio that I think lends an insight into the nature of just how dangerous not just Roe was in 1973, but the frequently less talked about companion decision, Doe v. Bolton. Give a listen. It's a brief snippet to a comment made by then member of the United States Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, on the topic of Roe versus Wade and abortion. Give a listen. Another feature of Roe is Roe really isn't about the woman's choice, is it? It's about the doctor's freedom to practice his profession as he thinks best. It wasn't woman-centered. It was physician-centered. Ding, 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 ding. Perhaps that, at the end of the day, is the real answer and why this has been so dangerous. Brian Johnston joins us now, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And it's amazing how in just that snippet of audio that was recorded at a seminar that she participated in some years ago really pulls back the curtain in terms of just how dangerous not just the one decision Roe was, but the companion decision Doe was. Craig, you're exactly right, and it's unfortunate. It's one of the reasons that KFAX exists and your program is that the dominant media misrepresents not only what's happening with facts right now, but the dominant media has misrepresented the facts of American history. And, of course, Roe v. Wade is a very important part of American history. But as you just pointed out, and as Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out, and really, Justice Byron White, one of the dissenters in Roe v. Wade back in 73, what Roe v. Wade did was empower physicians. Literally, in Roe, Blackman said, I am not going to let women determine their own abortions. And in particular, because Sarah Weddington, Sarah Weddington was the woman who was appealing the Texas law before the court. She was a former Texas state legislator, but most importantly, she was a radical feminist. I make that quality important, the radical feminist, because a lot of women, I know Christian women, say, oh, I'm a Christian feminist. Well, that's like saying I'm a Christian communist. If you understand what feminism is, feminism demands the right to kill your baby whenever you want. And it is actually an ideology more than simply caring about women. It's a specific ideology. It has come directly, and I kid you not, you'll see it in my book, it comes directly from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. In the Communist Manifesto, women are the very first oppressed class. It isn't the poor. 
it isn't a particular race. Women are oppressed, and the way that they're oppressed by men, those evil men, is through pregnancy. Because as soon as a woman gets pregnant, she wants to take care of that baby, and she naturally then wants some help, and she is going to defer to a man, and hopefully he'll go out and bring home the bacon, and he will care for her, and voila, the beginning of the family. Marx and Engels, their final book. Their first book was in 1848, The Communist Manifesto. The final book was The Rise of the Family Private Property in the State. They hate the family, and Marxism specifically says a woman must be free to not be a mother if she doesn't want to, and at any time. And in the debate, Sarah Weddington presented to Justice Blackman Women have to be free to kill their own children when they decide. Blackman was appalled. Again, this is in my book. I quote him. He said, I am not giving women that right. I am not. And specifically, by the way, he says, this is in Roe v. Wade at page 154. He says, I am not giving a woman the right to control her own body. There's no such right. It's nowhere to be found in the Constitution, and this court has never found such. And yet, somehow, the pop media says, oh, yeah, women have a right to choose. Oh, women have the right to control their own body. Well, you need said the opposite. But more to the point, as you, as you pointed out, few people know there were two decisions. Roe v. Wade, the laws of Texas, Doe versus Bolton came down the same day at the law of Georgia. And in Doe versus Bolton, all authority for abortions is given not to the woman, to physicians only. So a woman has a right to ask. A woman has a right to request. And I hope you'll play it one more time, because many people are stunned to hear what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Well, let's give a listen again, and then I want to pose a question. Uh, Once again, this is... Former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg commenting on the impact, the relevancy of Roe v. Wade. Another feature of Roe is Roe really isn't about the woman's choice, is it? It's about the doctor's freedom to practice his profession as he thinks best. It wasn't woman-centered. It was physician centers. Wow. I mean, that that's dynamite. And, and it's also demonstrative of this notion that by, by, by couching it in those terms, um, you, you, you completely put the medical profession on its head and you set up a scenario where you're essentially aiming a fire hose at the foundation of the very fabric of society. And as you do so in attacking of the, the family, uh, now you put at risk then all that has gone into what made this country what it was. So we put at risk very democracy and freedom of religion, freedom of speech, everything enshrined in the United States Constitution, and we're seeing this played out in the news almost every night, all of a sudden now is at significant risk because we have managed to come up with a way to cripple the foundation 
the very fabric, as I say, of American society, and do so. And in doing so, you can change all the terms of engagement across the board, and and eventually set up the platform that allows for the complete collapse of the freedoms and the 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 style of government uh, that we've enjoyed all these years, Brian. Yes. And and we have to remember, most importantly, the physician as a profession. We honor physicians. I grew up as a kid. My parents honored doctors. We have always honored doctors and esteemed them, but only for one reason. They're extremely well-educated. They commit themselves. If you want to find somebody who's tired and burned out, ask the medical profession. They work very hard, but it was originally for one purpose only for you. I swear I will do everything for you and your health and my vast knowledge of your body. I'll never use it to harm you. I swear. This goes back almost 3,000 years. Many anthropologists say that is what has separated the values of Western civilization from primitivism. Mm -hmm. Before that, a doctor was free to kill you, the witch doctor. And you could pay the witch doctor a chicken to heal you, but if your neighbor had paid them a goat because they would hope that you would die from your sickness, that doctor had no ethical standards, and they could say, well, sure, I'll give me that goat. And instead of slipping you a healthy thing, they could slip you a poison and use mumbo-jumbo just like they do now. They use mumbo-jumbo, polysyllabic Latin and Greek terms. And they imply they have control over your life. It's frightening. But right now, the official medical ethics of the United States of America is there are none. The Hippocratic Oath does not exist. Dr. Fauci is not obligated to the Hippocratic Oath. Many physicians now, unless you're a rare individual, Oh, Brian, I think we lost you there, a little bit of a bad cell phone connection. Brian Johnston, um, who dives into these issues in greater depth every Saturday at 11 a.m., we invite you to tune in. And it's going to be a critical year, as we've delineated, uh, moving toward that Supreme Court decision. But be mindful, this is just one part of the equation, dealing with the broader, deeper, and quite frankly, more evil issue of the license to kill. That still has to be addressed. And reversal of Roe v. Wade doesn't in its entirety accomplish that. More insights in Brian's new book, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, available through Amazon.com. Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. Information, too, about the California Pro-Life Council at CaliforniaProLife.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.